0: Hello friends and hello to all of you my friends it's always such a joy to have you here on the improv and magic podcast my name is LD Madera I have been very fortunate and lucky to have been able to talk to my guests here some of whom are legends in the world of improv and magic well Today is one of those special days where I get to talk to another legend, and this legend is Mick Napier. Mick is known both nationally and internationally as an innovator and creative force in comedy, improvisation, and theater. He's one of the founders of the world-famous Annoyance Theater in Chicago, where he spent more than 20 years developing and cultivating a style of work and production that has been both acclaimed and imitated. McNapier is also a director and artistic consultant for Second City, and has made his mark there having directed more than 10 reviews. He's written two very amazing books, called Improvise, Seen from the Inside Out, and Behind the Scenes, Improvising Long Form, both of which are considered some of the best books on the craft of improvisation. In addition, Mick Napier is also a magician. He and his wife Jennifer have been performing mentalism for over 20 years, and he's also a regular performer at the Chicago Magic Lounge. If you love improv, and if you love magic, then this gentleman is definitely someone you're going to want to hear from. I had such a great time talking to this man. What an honor to be able to have had this one-on-one conversation with this legend. So let's get to it, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, here is my guest, Mick Napier. My friends, it's a very special day because I get to talk to the legend himself, Mr. Mick Napier. How are you doing today, Mick?
1: I'm great. How are you doing?
0: I am doing fantastic. I'm a fan of yours and I've spoken to a lot of people who are also fans of yours as well. And it's just really great to talk to you right now. Well,
1: that's great. It's nice to talk to you too.
0: Tell me where you're speaking to us from right now.
1: I'm in Chicago. I'm in my kitchen. Um, I'm going to make a lox and bagels brunch with Bloody Marys later. And, uh, yeah, I'm just chilling.
0: (laughs) What's the weather like in Chicago right now?
1: It's not too bad, really. It's about, like, 50 degrees. Um, You know, thank thank God for global warming and climate change. (laughs) The Chicago winters are getting less offensive, so that's nice.
0: Yeah, I'm in Florida, so we don't really get winter. We just get uh, breezes. Yep. Well, uh, Mick, uh, again, thank you so much for being here, and you'll hear me thank you a whole lot. And why don't we get into the very beginnings of Mick Napier. So I want to start off by asking, where did you grow up, and what was growing up like for you?
1: Okay, I was born in Hazard, Kentucky, and my uh, father worked in coal mines there. And he moved us all up to Ohio because he wanted to get out of the coal mines because his father died of black lung in the coal mines. So we grew up in Ohio and he owned a construction company. So I did a lot of construction and then uh, went to uh, school at IU, Indiana University, and then moved to Chicago to like hopefully work with Second City.
0: Nice. And... When did performing become something that you became interested in when you were young?
1: When I was in fifth grade, I think it was fifth grade, a, a teacher left a classroom and then someone spied down the hallway and saw the teacher coming back and everyone raced to their chairs and I just slowly walked. And everyone laughed. And I'm like, wow, that was fun. <laughs> that's the first that's awesome. That's the first wow. time I remember like getting a laugh. Um, but making people laugh is really, really important to me. And I really enjoy it. I really, really enjoy it.
0: Were you a class clown back then?
1: I think I was a bit. Yeah. I ended up being in, in high school, I ended up being uh, class president all four years of my high school and uh you know voted most witty and whatnot it's it's kind of interesting ironic now because i'm so jaded i I actually don't like to watch comedy i only watch it when i'm creating it or you know if a good friend asks me to watch it or whatnot I, i will but i don't really gravitate toward watching comedy anymore
0: Hmm. I'm curious. Uh, why is that? Is it because you're just kind of so accustomed to comedy being your profession and you prefer not to let it be your, your personal enjoyment? What's What's the reason behind that?
1: I think it's just because I'm so cynical about it now. It, it's almost like I've, I've seen so much comedy and, and directed so many comedy shows. It's almost like an algorithm for me like, okay, here's the math of this, here's the math of that. I, pre- I predict this, I predict that. It's just kind of, uh, there's no surprise or delight in it and, anymore. And, and I really feel like that's sad, but I love to laugh with friends and I love to create comedy and I love to um, make people laugh. I really do enjoy that. The, the sick part of me, the, the things that make me laugh, is actually like torture porn.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> like that makes me laugh because it's shocking. Like, and not and horror films. Like that that makes me laugh. Like, oh my lord, who thought of that? Um, I do appreciate uh, and respect comedy, but I don't gravitate toward it. I don't like if I were watching a TV show and it was a sitcom or a true crime thing, I would do the true crime thing.
0: Why do you think comedy has gotten so predictable these days? Because I think you're right. You can watch any sitcom or maybe even any comedy movie and you know exactly what's going to happen. You kind of get the sense that you know what someone is going to do and how this is going to wind up. Why do you think that's how comedy has become now?
1: Well, I could probably talk about that for hours. Like, um, uh, a bit of it is that, uh, like, The year we're in, the years we're in, like 2023, the sensitivity of people has become exaggerated and um, a lot of comedy as a result of that has been homogenized. And then another reason, because I have worked in television, is that if you have 10 producers on something, everyone talks themselves out of the funniest thing in order to make it more accessible to the largest demographic possible. And that just becomes homogenized, you know, average comedy. So there's no edge to it. Um, there's nothing surprising about it, etc. cetera. Gotcha.
0: How did you discover improv?
1: I had discovered improv. I was in college at IU and uh, studying theater. And I became a little bored with, like, uh, rehearsing the same thing over and over. And I stumbled upon Jeffrey Sweet's Something Wonderful Right Away. And that's a book that was essentially interviews with people that created the Compass Theater and Second City. The Compass was what became Second City. And uh, I became inspired by that. Like, wow, that's amazing that people just improvise things. And I'd never seen improvisation before. And I'd never performed improvisation before. But me and my friend Dave McNerlin posted a notice on our on the IU Theater Board that we were going to audition people for an improv group. And we did. And we had never done it or never seen it. And we auditioned people. And, and people showed up. And Joe Bell was one of those people that... that be cast in that group and mark sutton we just happened to live on the same dorm floor um and i always thought he was so funny and it took me like a year or so to convince him to just become part of this group the group was called double take and we performed in a couple of bars in in bloomington indiana
0: yeah when mark was here on the podcast he did say that how he at one point kind of got drafted by you to be part of that group
1: yeah he was very reluctant to do it he's funny because um he was really wanting to be a sportscaster like he wanted to be an an announcer of sports um and people called him Howard that was his nickname after Howard Cosell and he got into improvisation and I kind of like sometimes feel guilty like that I' fucked his life over. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he's pretty happy. He's happily married. he's doing well. Yeah. What was it
0: like meeting Joe Bill for the first time?:
1: um, I don't remember exactly when I did meet him, but uh, it was good. Like, we had a really good we had a really good uh, relationship. We used to rehearse in his uh, fraternity, and that was nice. But yeah, we had a good time. Joe was actually the only person in that group that had ever improvised before. And there was, you know, there was another uh, woman named Faith Soloway that was part of that group. And uh, Faith and Jill, uh, her sister, went on to do amazing things they created a television show called transparent and they're getting ready to open a Broadway musical called transparent. And yeah, it's it's just wild the way this, you know, it's kind of like flourished in, in that way. I'm still poor, but you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So when you were beginning improv for the very first time, how would you describe your early approaches at the very beginning
1: it's a great question um just kind of like learning from each other we started with just doing games and then we started doing sketch um and then we slowly got into it like scenic improvisation but we really didn't know what the fuck we were doing but we had fun and we had an audience and the audience enjoyed it it was Strange for me when I moved to Chicago and started taking classes at Second City, for the first time in my life, I learned about some rules about improvisation, like even yes and, and, you know, don't create conflict or don't talk about the past. Don't talk about the future, all these rules. And it really fucked me up. And I think that that was my cynicism. And my surprise at these rules were the genesis of me be- like starting to believe improvisation can be taught in a different way. And that really crept up into me writing two books about it in, in our school at The Annoyance. And I don't think that any one way of teaching improvisation is wrong, but I just found a different approach to it through all of that.
0: Well, I am uh, the proud owner of one of your books, Improvise, oh, yeah. which <laughs> you released in 2004. Thank you. And, and uh, it's a great book. And for everyone listening, if you love improv and acting in general, please pick up that book. It's, a, it's one of those life-changing books. And you touched upon something that I do want to get into, because in the book, it begins with how you feel about the improv rules and yeah. how you talk about how you believe strongly how the improv rules do more to hurt a scene than to help it. Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that the improv rules really do more to conflict than to open?
1: Well, there. Yeah. Like one of the, the first things that made me think that is that I was, you know, taught not to ask questions in an improv scene. So I was improvising while thinking about not doing something. So I thought, well, boy, this is really frustrating to be improvising a scene while thinking about not doing a lot of things as opposed to doing things. So that was the first thing. The second thing that I noticed is that people would ask questions in scenes and yeah, sometimes it did detract from the scene, but sometimes it was okay. And the instructor would not notice that when it was okay that it was okay for example so people would ask you know a a bad a a bad fear-filled example of asking a question is like what are you doing like that's a really bad thing in improv for someone to ask and they ask it just that way like well what are you doing out of fear and confusion But if someone asks a question in an improv scene like this, what are you doing? It's okay because it has point of view or it has emotion or it has attitude behind it. And I noticed that when people did that in improv scenes, instructors and directors, they didn't notice that that was a bad thing. So I'm like, it's not the question it's what's behind it. And that's the way I started to think about improvisation is like, what do you have going on behind it? it? It's not the literal problem that someone's talking about the past. It's the how, how are you doing it? Because you could, you know, you could say like, you know, last year I, and you're okay. You have some character behind it, but it, people just kind of like, have these check boxes of things that people do wrong in improvisation. And it's, it's not, in my opinion, it's not the thing. But once again, I don't think that there's one way of teaching improvisation. I think that there's several and I don't, you know, I joke about it. And I say, I don't think there's like Chicago in Chicago. Like there's I second city and the annoyance. We have all three have different, ways of teaching improvisation. And there's other theaters that have different ways of of teaching improvisation. And I really don't believe there's one true way as much as people would like to think there is. I don't think that there is the one right way to teach people to stand on a raised platform and talk into the air.
0: It's funny when I was talking to, um, to our other mutual friend, uh, David Rosowski, he talks a lot about how, when you avoid the improv rules, you come off more as a human being, which is why he's so against the rules in the first place. Would you agree?
1: I think so. I know that he. I know you wrote a book. I I, I read the like the first chapter of it. Um, that was about like being subversive about improvisation. I don't know. I I don't know if you're more authentic. I think I, I would just invite people to not really worry about those rules. In my school of thought. Because thinking about them is kind of like, I don't know if you know Heisenberg, Heisenberg uncertainty principle is like the more you measure something, the more it affects the outcome. And I believe that those rules do that is that the more you think about them, the more it detracts from you creating a positive and fun choice. It's hard. I mean, you're, I, I, I reckon back to like um, children playing like, You're a kid playing army with your friends in the neighborhood, and you're not thinking like, wow, I need to play army in a way that any observer would find it right, and I need to play by these certain rules. You're just fucking playing, and I think that the more you think about rules, the less likely you are to have fun and play, and I I just kind of simply believe that.
0: You know, as a teacher, I do tend to see students who try to really double down on those rules. And you're absolutely right. The more you put in your head, am I checking off the boxes and following these rules, the less you see people having fun and, yeah. and playing. Would you agree that playing and fun is a huge component for what we do as improvisers? Oh, my
1: God, of course. Yeah, and I, I also have this... Equation that is like the more importance you place on an improvisational experience, the less likely you are to play. And I, having, having watched thousands of Second City auditions, I've probably seen more Second City auditions than anyone on the planet at this point, which I'm not bragging about, I'm just saying is that I, people place a lot of importance on an improvisational audition, and as a result, there are more likely to be in fear and less likely to play and fuck around and have fun. And it's just true. You have a producer or a director in the audience that's watching you and that places importance on the improv experience, the less likely you are to just fuck around. Time is another thing. Like if I told, you know, hey, we're going to improvise scenes and, and they're five seconds long, then they fuck around a lot. Hi, we're going to improvise scenes and they're five minutes long. Suddenly it becomes important because the length of time is important. So there's less likely uh, people they are just going to jump in and commit and have fun. Long form, those words, long form, are very scholastic and very long. And long form has people play to the top of their intelligence near themselves and very slow and whatnot. Like I just have a whole thing about that.
0: You mentioned the term playing to the top of your intelligence. And I think it's one of those buzz phrases that everyone kind of has their own interpretation to what that phrase means for you. What do you mean when you use the term play to the top
1: of your intelligence? I think what, I think what I mean with it is I, I never use that phrase like when I teach or anything because what I feel like it suggests is like being smart, intellectual and analytical. So I never use that phrase. My assumption with the people that I direct, like if I'm directing this, the main stage of second city is that people are going to be playing to the top of their intelligence, but you don't have to create that label for that. And that label, creates a stigma of measurement that actually detracts from play. Of course, people are going to write, you know, from the top of their intelligence, hopefully, but I never use that phrase. I feel like it's a bit destructive, it's very much a long form term. I've seen so many Second City auditions. And I think that a lot of people come into those auditions with the idea of, I want to play the top of my intelligence. I want to agree. I want to listen. I want to support my partner. And they do that. And I've seen it a million times. But the scenes are really fucking boring, (laughs) because that's what they're thinking. I invite people to come to those auditions who's like, I want to be fucking funny. I want to get laughs. I want to pull laughs, because that's what I got into this for. I didn't get into this to do like good top of my intelligence, play near to myself, scene work. I got into this to pull laughs, and if you're not funny in a second city audition, you're not gonna get called back. And that mentality some sometimes oftentimes detracts from the people's ability to like just be funny. I wrote a whole chapter about that in my second book, and I'd like to invite the improv world to make it okay to themselves that they want to be funny because improv is always like don't go for the joke don't try to be funny don't fuck that if you're a good improviser you're not going to like bulldoze a scene you're not going to go for a joke you're not going to joke out a scene but you i would love to invite everyone to feel like they are allowed to be funny
0: Why do you think a lot of improvisers tend to double down on those rules and double down on don't try to be funny? For me personally, I kind of feel like a lot of people want to do that because there's a bit of underestimating of the audience that goes on because they feel like, well, if we don't have a who, what, where, the audience won't be able to follow along and know what this is. That's my own opinion. But what's your opinion as to why, both performers and a lot of improv schools really like to harp on those rules so much.
1: Cause everybody loves rules, something to, something to, you know, lean on and also something to teach. Like here's some things I can teach with improvisation. Otherwise you don't have anything, but I don't think I've ever done a, a great improv show where it was really fun and playful Where someone came up to me after the show and said, I really, really, really loved that because I understood who you were, what you were doing, and where you were. That's not the reason they enjoyed it. The reason they enjoyed it is like, you were the wiggly guy. And that was funny. You know, the the exposition is so, in my opinion, exposition is so overrated in improvisation. We spend so much time trying to make sense of the scene and trying to figure out how to make sense of the scene where really the funny lies in the crazy. And my opinion about exposition is that it it is vital in some way, but the best improvisers I've ever worked with or the best scenes I've ever had, the exposition is like kind of just, Tactfully woven into the first few beats of a scene, it's not declared in the first three lines or anything like that. And I, I, I feel like a, a really good scene could be like, well, here we are, like just with a little attitude and a little something, and then you figure out where you are three lines later. You figure out what your relation is, relationship is four lines later, and it's just kind of tactfully, uh, deftly woven into the scene as opposed to declared at the top of the scene. Because no one gives a shit.
0: Right. No one's sitting in the audience with a checklist in their hands.
1: They're not. They have no idea.
0: And if they are, then they're improv teachers. That's what Rizowski would say. I agree. You know, one thing that makes me also really, really giddy as I learn more about you is that you are also a magician as well. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of magic do you do? Uh,
1: my wife Jennifer and I we do a two person mentalism act, which we just did a run at at the uh, a place called the Chicago Magic Lounge here in Chicago uh, last November, and then I do card magic all the time, like at the annoyance and the bar and stuff like that.
0: And where did your interest for magic come from?
1: We saw Jennifer and I saw a guy named. Uh, I can never remember his last name, but I think it was Mark Salem, like 25 years ago in New York City in the East Village. And um, you know what a magic square is, right? Yes. Okay, so he did that by himself. And it was the first thing he did. And I turned to Jennifer and I said, I want to learn how to fucking do that. Like, that's amazing. So now as part of our act, she will be in the audience and get a number from an audience member uh, and put it on a slate and show the audience and I will not see it. I will not hear it. And then I'll do a magic square that is that number. So it's kind of fun.
0: Yeah, magic square is such an amazing effect and it just drives people absolutely wild. I'm curious, how do you perform? Do you present yourselves as some sort of characters or are you just Mick and Jennifer?
1: Our introduction, because we are, we are such atheists, both of us. We absolutely are staunch atheists. So we, had, we performed this for a while. We'd have people come up to us after and think that we were psychics. And that always bothered us. So, we had kind of a crisis of consciousness about that. So, our introduction is uh, me saying, Hi, we are Napier and Eslin. And I say, I'm Mick Napier. Jennifer says, Hi, I'm Jennifer Eslin. I say, In the history of mankind, Jennifer and I believe that no psychic, spiritual, or paranormal event has ever happened in the human, I mean, in the history of mankind. And then Jennifer says, But for the next X amount of time, we are going to pretend as if we do believe that. And that's how we create the context for it. Because we don't want anyone to think that we're actually psychic. We want them to know it's a trick. And then we get to we get to use that throughout the show. If something fucks up, I can say, like, well, like I said, there's nothing psychic going on here. <laughs> um, yeah, and my... My goal was the last, with the last run that we had in this place. It's a beautiful place called the Chicago Magic Lounge. It's really, really lovely. It has a bar with a close-up pad in the middle of the bar and, and a magician on a microphone there. And then it has a large theater. It holds like 250 people, and that's where we perform. And then it has a, a, close-up, uh, a close-up theater as well called the 654 Club. Do you know why it's called that?
0: Because of Bill Malone, I assume.
1: Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So we performed in the in the larger uh, in the larger theater, and we were very nervous about it every time we did it, but it was really fun.
0: It's funny as I hear you describe how you and Jennifer perform. Of course it makes me think of how Penn and Teller perform because they have very much the same attitude throughout the entire show. They're going, we're Penn and Teller and everything you're watching is bullshit.
1: Yeah, they do.
0: And you know, it's funny. This is a, an ongoing fight that magicians tend to have, you know, this need to let people know, no, I don't have psychic powers you know, and the fact that psychics come out, do the same tricks and say, yeah, we do have psychic powers. How important do you feel it is to be honest as a magician? And I know it's a little ironic to say it that way, but how important is honesty for you in magic?
1: I think it's very important. I mean, you have, you know, you have in history so many people who are charlatans who take people's money and whatnot and, you know, Houdini. Part of half of his life was to debunk people that claimed that they were psychic or claimed that they could do whatever. And I, I, I think it's just really important. It, it makes me, uh, it makes me mad when people take advantage of people. Jennifer and I have said many times, like if we were bad people, we could be millionaires and create a whole like religion and just. It's Yeah, it, it makes me crazy. My only goal in the run, in the last run that we did, was to get like maybe 80% of the method right, because we do mess up, and uh, to get laughs. And, uh, and then I asked the owner, Joey Stanford, I asked him, like, is it okay to say the word fuck? So my goal was to use the word fuck. Because I thought that, <laughs> they thought, like, in magic shows, people kind of associate with them, with like, children's magic, where magic shows have decorum, and I just wanted to, like, say the word fuck a lot. So, and I think our second show, there was a guy with a Cubs hat on, I brought him on stage in the first two minutes, and I said, "So you're a Cubs fan?" He goes, "Yeah." And I go, I'm like, "What? What's it like to be a fucking asshole?" <laughs> <laughs> just, I just wanted to like, uh, kind of disarm the audience a little bit, because you don't hear that, you don't hear that that much in a, in a magic show.
0: So no, that's cool. not something you would often hear in magic.
1: Yeah, and Jennifer's really uh, rather proper and whatnot. And I'm kind of a ruffian. Yeah,
0: it's funny. When I was talking to Mark Sutton about uh, the first time he met you, he, he told me that people who meet you think that you're mean, but when they get to know you, they find out that you're really nice.
1: Yeah, people do think that I am. I, I, I think I have a reputation of being really mean. Like, I've had people, people tell me that, uh, like, I'll have dinner with someone and they'll, you know, tell me later, like, I... I prepped them to meet you because, you know, you're so mean, but I'm not. Like, if I meet people, I'm very nice. But if I get to know people, I'm very uh, playfully hateful. But fuck Mark Sutton because he's hateful, too. We used to live live together in college with a guy named Eric Waddell. And it was like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? It was just crazy. (laughs) We rip each other apart all the time. And if someone came over to our apartment, we all lived together. We would use them like as a tool to just rip each other apart. Mark Sutton's very hateful.
0: <laughs> yeah. And he was willing to admit that as well. I should say to his credit. Yeah. So fun. I'm curious when you're performing magic, how much of your knowledge of improv comes into your show?
1: That is a great question. Um, I'll tell you this. I've been directing uh, magicians for like four years. I've directed five magicians. And then uh, Jennifer and I went down to Dallas, and there were five magicians that joined us in this bizarre mansion where we developed a show and performed it in a theater in this guy's mansion. It was really weird. So I've worked with magicians so so much. and what's interesting is they, the last magician I directed, his name's Justin Purcell. He's really great. And after the first show, all of these magicians came and gave him notes, like eight of them. And I was like, and after they were gone, I'm like, what is going on in my world of like sketch and acting? Actors don't give each other notes like that. And Justin's like, yeah, in, in magic, it happens a lot so that got me really in my head and that was before Jennifer and I were performing and I became like afraid of that I don't want that to happen so Jennifer and I performed our first show and sure as fucking hell like fucking sick magicians came up to us and gave us notes and what was funny about it is that they didn't give us notes about the magic they gave us notes about the performance and the comedy and I'm like, who the fuck do you think you're fucking talking to? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, the part, that's the part I'm most confident about. Um, but to answer your question, like, it, it really helps. I feel like that magicians, because they're so much in solitude and working on their shit alone, and they're also, they buy tricks and they just memorize scripts, that sometimes they have a hard time bringing an audience member on stage or having an improvisational tone with them um, or doing any crowd work kind of stuff. Um, so improvisation help, helps us greatly. Jennifer is an amazing actress and a really good improviser. And it helps me greatly just to have fun with people and, and get laughs, etc. But I did think it was funny that magicians gave me notes on that shit. I'm like, what? Because, um, you know, it, with magic, it, as you know, it's it's wild because you're, like if you're a dancer, you dance. You show what you can do. If you're an actor, you act. You show that you're an actor. If you're a singer, you sing. You show that you can sing. If you're a magician, you're actually concealing the part that is the most talented, which is the method while you're talking about nothing or you're kind of guiding them through an experience, but your brain is in another way. You're thinking about, you're thinking about, you know, an, an Elmsley count and a double lift. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, of the notes that you got from magicians, did any of them say to you, you shouldn't say fuck so much? No, no
1: one did. They should have, but no one did.
0: (laughs) Uh, I do notice that. I mean, you're so right. Like, magic is the one art form where everybody kind of wants to give you notes. I think what's dangerous about magicians giving each other notes is that they're giving notes from their own personal perspective on magic, and they're giving you notes on the magic that they would like you to do as opposed to what everyone else would probably enjoy. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I would. and, you know, and they they haven't they haven't had the experiences that you know, like with Jennifer and I they haven't had the experiences that we've had. So they haven't witnessed what we've learned that people like and how we've grown in that way so you know they can give me a note on how to present something but i've already learned like five or six or seven times that that doesn't work because i've tried that and i get the response and it's not great you know so i think that yeah you you don't know how people evolve and stuff like that and i In in directing magicians, they're very, uh, quite often, very reluctant. Like, they ask me to direct things, and I do, but then they're reluctant to take notes because they've learned a way that they work well. Plus, most magicians have never had a director. They've always just crafted their their own performance alone. So to have someone objectify what they do is, uh, is someone, they, there's some resistance with that sometimes.
0: Have you also seen that reluctance when you're directing improv as well?
1: Yeah, sometimes. But if I'm directing, say, the main stage of Second City, I expect and actually hope that I have six very cynical people in that cast sitting before me. And I'm very cynical, and I I can match their cynicism. And uh, the reason I want that cynicism is, and and some anger, is because that brings about bold choices and good comedy. If they're not cynical, I worry about it a little bit. And a lot of times, the least cynical people are the weakest people in the cast, and I worry about them. And their ability to gain enough real estate in the show, enough time in the show, because uh, they don't have them and vigor to get them there. Uh, by the time you get to the main stage of Second City, hopefully you've been through three years of classes, some IO teams, uh, a couple of touring companies, and it's and six or seven years later, and you're on the main stage, and you're probably a little jaded, and hopefully very cynical about everything.
0: You know, one thing I hear a lot in both improv and magic is people often talk about how willing you need to be to take risks. For you, and you can talk about either improv or magic or both, how important is it to be willing to take risks?
1: Well, in improv and sketch, it's absolutely vital. Like, if you, don't, if you don't take risks with improvisation or sketch comedy, then you're going to fail. And um, I'm at a point when I improvise that if a scene sucks, like, it's really awful, I enjoy it greatly. Like, I don't mind. I'm just kind of basking it, like, wow, this sucks. It is not getting laughs. And I often think, like, okay, I'm going to make it worse. I want to make it worse. I want to really feel the pain of this scene. And I do that. And there's a lot of good improvisers that uh, I know that feel the same way. Where where you've had enough of a a success rate that when you have a real hit, like a real painful scene, like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to see if I can lean into this and make it work with magic. I feel a little less of that because, um, I feel okay with, I feel okay with risking failure with the, with whatever I'm saying. Um, but as you know, where you don't want to fail is in method because you want the trick to work and There's times, you know, where tricks don't work Um, and you have to deal with that. But I am less, I have a less of an ability to deal with a magic trick working or not working than an improv scene or a sketch not working. Last night I was doing magic um, uh, card tricks at the bar. I think you'll understand this and I don't want to reveal too much, but I was doing um uh, first trick very simple trick someone picked a card and i wanted to know what it was without looking at it and the Tamariz deck was not in order does that make sense
0: it absolutely makes sense
1: (laughs) and it fucked up so i had to just go abort and it was like a Five six people around me watching and it was the first thing I did and it completely fucking up and I just said abort like I didn't know how. I, I didn't you know I don't know how to get out of that if the method doesn't work <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know I, I love what you said about how when you're performing in a scene and it sucks you go out of your way to make it suck even more or just make it even worse and it's funny because you often hear the opposite. You often hear, "Well, let's support each other. Let's try to save the
1: scene, and, and yeah. blah blah blah." Good fucking luck. That's what I say to that. I feel like like in, in an improv scene, like once you're in your head, you're dead. Like you're you're not going to like magically snap out of it. And that's why I advocate for starting scenes very early and with and verbally, so that you can just really establish a point of view or a character or something to minimize the risk of having the scene and you be in its head, like analyze itself as it goes on. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen an improv scene that sucks that halfway through all all of a sudden it becomes magical and wonderful. So I don't know, (laughs) I've seen thousands of improv scenes. I'm sure yeah. I have.
0: But I think it also might be a bit subjective because I think everyone kind of has their own idea of what makes an improv scene suck. And, you know, how you would see a scene sucking may be different from how someone else may see a scene sucking. For you, what makes an improv scene absolutely suck?
1: Oh, my Lord. I can tell in about five seconds whether a scene's going to suck or not. But really? Oh, sure. If you have two people on stage, like lights up, one person looks like one person has a cup in their hand, um, you know, miming a cup in their hand, and they look at their scene partner, then they look back at the cup, then they look at their scene partner. I can tell everyone's in their head. Everyone's, Everyone's kind of starting out in a measured state they're fucked a little bit you know usually those scenes start with like look at partner look at cup in hand look at partner and then someone goes like so what's up i mean you're just fucked i don't know i can usually tell and having seen so many auditions and like i said earlier the, the equation of like uh more importance you place on an improvisation experience, the less likely you are to play Uh, in auditions. That's really huge. And a lot of scenes start with a lot of exposition in that way. And in Chicago, with uh, IO and just the long-form influence of Chicago and now around the world, thanks to Sharna Halpern, for real, is that a lot of people... Feel like long form has a bit more integrity than other forms of improvisation and so much so that someone invented the word short form as a reaction to long form in order to see if they could gain credibility with what essentially are improv games and that's why they created that term but as people are more um Encouraged to play to the top of their intelligence, play slow, play near themselves, just like Del Close advocated. When it comes to auditioning for Second City, they haven't created the skill set to have a broad range of character. So they play near themselves. But on the day of that audition, they pretend like they do have that skill set, but they don't. And I've seen... So many people, kind of out of hypocr- hypocrisy, pretend like they have the skill set of having a character range, but they don't. And they don't get hired, at Second can say, because they don't know how to do that. It's, it's a bizarre little thing. Does that make sense?
0: It makes total sense. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, because I was also going to ask, what are some of the mistakes that you see when people audition for Second City? And I think you kind of touch upon that. Are there other mistakes that you tend to see in auditions?
1: I'll tell you, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is if you're auditioning for anything improvisationally, don't ever, ever, ever scream. Don't talk loud. Because everyone in the room, all they're thinking is, well, they're not They're not listening to what you're saying, but all they're thinking is, I can't wait until you shut the fuck up.
0: <laughs> really good piece of advice right there. I'd like to ask about the Annoyance Theater. You played a part in uh, creating that theater, and it's one of those theaters that's in very high regard and people love it. And you've done some wonderful things at that theater. How did the annoyance get started?
1: We actually were in a place called cross currents and we were at a restaurant, me and some of my friends and Mark Sutton was there. I think Joe was there too. And we, it was, uh it was September 10th and we were just talking like we we're talking about horror films and like Friday the 13th, stuff like that. And we decided on that day to open a show exactly one month from that day on October 10th called Splatter Theater, where the walls would be white and 13 to 15 people would be murdered and there would be blood all over the walls, you know, by the end of the show. And we did it. We did it upstairs at this place called Cross Currents. And that's kind of the beginning of it. And I was the director kind of by default. I, at that point in my life, I didn't fancy myself as a director, really. But I kind of just de facto did it. And I, that kind of just changed my worldview about myself. Like, okay, I'm a director. And after that, we opened a show in the same place called Co-Ed Prison Sluts. And then we decided that we wanted to get our own space. So we begged, borrowed, and stealed to get the money to get a space. And we stayed up one night with a bottle of tequila, eight of us, and seriously all night and wrote a huge list of uh, names in which that document is in a frame in the bar in the annoyance now of different names we came up with. And we circled the annoyance and we decided to call it that. There's part of me that regrets that um, because it's kind of like in the world, in the corporate world, it's kind of been destructive. Like, you know, you can, you can get corporate work at Second City or IO or UCB, but the annoyance That's kind of a hard word to uh, get through if you're wanting to do corporate work. That's one reason I kind of uh, regret that. But I like it okay. I mean, it it does have its own brand and name and stuff.
0: Hmm. I've heard a lot about Splatter Theater. It's one of those legendary shows that you just have to see to believe. And still running to this very day, if I'm not
1: mistaken. Yeah, we do every Halloween. Like every yeah. Halloween season, I was really proud of it, and it still it still holds up. It's still funny. Um, in the middle of it is a is a puppet stage uh, in which we do a thing called the meat puppets, and it's real live meat. It's a, it's a real chicken, real hot dogs and stuff. And there's a little puppet show just to fill the time. Um, it's really bloody. It's funny. Yeah, yeah, I was always proud of it. I still am proud of it.
0: Mark told me that to this very day, he still can't stand the smell of chocolate syrup because of splattered theater.
1: Yeah, that's how we use the blood. Now, when I was experimenting with the blood, um, I didn't know how to make blood, and I read about like stage blood with syrup and all this shit, and it got this sticky and weird. And then I read about Psycho. Alfred Hitchcock, he used... Uh, in Psycho, he used chocolate syrup for blood. So I decided to try that and then add some red food coloring. And what's great about it is it's it's very viscous. So like when you put it on your hand, it runs down your hand just like blood would. And it looks like blood. And it's also edible. And I do empathize with Mark that like chocolate syrup is, you do get tired of smelling that. It does, it smells like chocolate syrup.
0: How did people react to it uh, in the beginning when you first started doing it? Did people enjoy it right away? Were people kind of freaked out by it? What were people's initial reaction to
1: splatter theater? I think that people really did like it right away because it's so funny. It's kind of protected. It has all the tropes of like a Friday the 13th movie. Um, Characters named themselves in it like hi i'm richard i'm the class dick hi i'm you know susan i'm the class slut like the, the tropes are very announced in that in that way so it's it's kind of protected it, as gory as it is it, it has a fair amount of innocence about it and you know naivete and protection yeah people liked it right away the like Prison Slut was a different story, though. The first uh, time we previewed that was on a Wednesday, and it got, like, five laughs, and I could feel the audience was angry, and I had people come up to me afterwards and tell me, like, how angry they were about it, how I didn't protect women. It was misogynist. I went into the little office I had there at that time, and I actually literally cried. That was on a Wednesday. On a Thursday, me and Mark Sutton, we we redid the running order, the order in which the scenes went, rewrote some exposition um, to prop up some characters to explain why they were the way they were, and had a rehearsal Thursday night And then on Friday, we opened it, and it got 100 laughs and a standing ovation. And I didn't change a word after that. And it was a huge lesson to me in how to protect material, how to provide an appropriate exposition for characters so the audience would feel protected and could follow along, etc. Yeah, it was one of the biggest learning experiences in two days that I ever had in my life as a director.
0: I think that goes back to what we were talking about being willing to, to take a risk. Cause I think with coed prison sluts, you could probably see that as a, as a risk. And you know, you had that first failure, but then you went back and redid it. And now it, it became something that people still talk about to this day. Susan Messing uh, still loves the hell out of that show.
1: Yeah, and it ran for 14 years. And then we were running it on New Year's for like five years. And then I started to feel a, a change in the audience. Like, oh boy, I'm not, I'm not getting away with this anymore. And uh, we stopped doing it. And it because there's, there's a song in it that is, there's a character in the show that is a pedophile in prison. And this character sings a song essentially glorifying pedophilia. But when we first did it, or first few years, the audience is like quite aware that, like, the the show knows that this is stupid and it's not right and all of that. But it started to get to a point where, with the uh, younger generation of today, they didn't realize. The whole context. So they just like would check the box of this is an offensive song about pedophilia. So now I've got four people. That's my dog. We've got four people working to rewrite Coed Prison slots to see if it can be more accepted by younger people because they like the show, but there's certain things that they find offensive as well. So I've been working with them to see if we can rewrite it. And it's really interesting uh, what their point of view is. And one of my first comments to them was, well, I think the first thing we want to do is retitle it COVID prison sluts. And their response was no slut is a very, uh, very important and strong word in the world among young people now. Like people have claimed that word, younger people have claimed that word and use it often. It's a perfect title. I'm like, all right, fuck me, I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know, it's definitely a sign of how times have definitely changed now. You know, I mean, and, and I think you, you kind of touched upon this earlier, how there's a lot more sensitivity than there was before. And of course, we see now that sensitivity bleeding into the arts and especially in the world of improv. For you, for doing it as long as you've had and for directing it for as long as you have, how do you see improv in regards to this new age of oversensitivity that we we see in our society?
1: It's it's a challenge, and we have to look at it, especially with the annoyance, because the annoyance's brand is you know subversive, uncensored comedy. So it's something that we have to look at. It's particularly hard for me because, as you said earlier, like people sometimes regard me as someone who's going to be mean, and the reason they believe, and then you know, they find out I'm nice, but the reason they believe that is I do fuck with people a lot if, if I know them and trust them. Um, and as a result of that, people fuck with me a lot. I have several text conversations with people that are 24 years old that uh, when they text me, their salutation is fuck you. I, you know, and I'm fine with that. And the reason I bring that up is it's been particularly hard for me because. I consider myself uninsultable. Like I can't imagine anything that anyone could say to me that would insult me. I mean, anything, because I've gone through it all, and you know, people give it back. So it's been particularly, yeah, sensitive. We've had we've had many uh, um, many times where people have said something in a class, and then they'll come up. You know we'll have a meeting with them and they were a little offended by something that someone said in a class or in a show. Um, Yeah we just had we had a a show up right now and we've had some comments from some people that were offended by different elements of the show and you just have to I think just have to decide what you want to you know what you want to keep and what you want to change and just kind of play it by ear. But it's, as you said, it's not, it's not been an easy journey in that way. And, and Jennifer, and I don't think it's going to get any easier uh, in the near future.
0: I might as well ask, what's your dog's name?
1: Uh, Tess. (laughs) We've had her about eight months and we love her and she's great. Um, she doesn't bark very often, but I guess she's barking now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess Tess had, uh, some opinions of her own too, in this conversation. Are there any type of performers that you really enjoy working with? And on the flip side, are there also types of performers you don't enjoy working with?
1: Yeah. I, I have a hard time working with like really, really passive aggressive white straight men because they never make decisions. And once you feel like something's been solved, they go like, um, or I'm like, we just fucking solved this problem. Uh, people that I like to work with most. I'm trying to think, well, I mean, I like uh, Kevin Dorf. Um, I'm t- trying to think of people, Rachel Dratch, Tina Fey, uh, Steve Colbert, people that are, kind in life and not disruptive in a rehearsal, but on stage they light up and make amazing choices, whether they work or not. Those are the best people to work with, I think. And there's, you know, there's other people that I'm like, oh my God, this person is dangerous. And by dangerous, I mean, oh man you're going to ask me to have coffee after the rehearsal and talk about their characters. Like my <laughs> advice to anyone who's in a sketch show or an improv show, do not ever, ever ask a director to have coffee after a rehearsal, because if you do do that, know that you are weak of character and that you are going to cause more harm talking about that with your director than you will help yourself. And it will feel like, even if you did get the conversation, when you leave Starbucks, it feels like you have gained something, but you've lost so much and you don't even know it. You
0: know, you've had the opportunity to work with some really great people who now everybody knows. You've worked with Rachel Dratch. You've worked with Stephen Colbert. How does it feel for you to see these people that have now moved on and become these superstars in comedy? How does it make you feel?
1: It makes me feel good. They're, um, I, just because they're friends and I, I like them, there's one thing that I don't do is claim any responsibility for their being where they are, like other people do. I have a huge opinion about that, um, that I never want to do that. And yeah, we'll mention them in publicity and stuff, but I never want to claim that I had any influence. I might have had some influence, but I'm certainly not responsible for their fame. And I do feel good about them being where they are, um, I also feel, like, really confident about when I see them being myself because I don't like comedy, so I never see them. Like, I never watch SNL or I never watch Steven's show or anything or Amy Sedaris' show. So I, I just feel like, you know, it was just like yesterday. And people... People that uh, are in my classes will ask me, like, what, what was it like to work with Stephen Colbert? And I'll say, it was exactly like working with you right now. That's how it was. Like, oh. That's a lovely
0: response. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mick, here's my last question for you, my friend. Okay. And this is the same question that I ask everybody at the very end. And I'm excited to know what your answer to this question is. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you'd want everyone else to hear?
1: All's well that ends. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's like my motto is like all's well that ends. I guess, I don't know. I could answer this more substantially. Um, uh, is I'm sure you've heard this five fucking thousand times, but it's truly like create your own voice, especially if you're doing comedy or magic, like create more for magic because most magicians like just are rote with the scripts that they buy and shit is the, create your your own voice like even with magic people might remember the tricks but they're more likely to talk about you the magician and your point of view and your personality as opposed to that card trick which they might remember or might not but they're they're going to like you know talk about the magician and the, the personality of that person but even an improv and sketch is is find your own voice, write a lot, um, put it out there, and I guess be more selfish than you think you should be, because I think that an improv with the support your partner, listen, yes, and it creates this rosy world where people feel like that they're not allowed to take care of themselves take care of their careers, um, be selfish, find a point of view. And a lot of people, especially in Chicago for sure, is they feel like that if they're on a team, like an improv team, that they're on a good track, like they're on a good journey. And they are on a good creative journey, but you're not really on a career journey. You feel like you are, and it's an illusion. Like it feels like you're okay. But really, you're not taking care of yourself enough. So there's more substantive advice, I guess.
0: (laughs) That sounds great. Mick, I had such a great time talking to you. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time, my friend.
1: Well, thank you. I've had a really nice time talking to you. I'm going to have some Bloody Marys and uh, some blocks and bagels now. (laughs)
0: Well, have one for me, my friend. (laughs)
1: You got it. Thank you so much.
0: You know, I don't think we consider that enough. It's okay to take care of yourself. That's really great advice, because you can't support anyone else until you've given support to the most important person, yourself. I hope we all remember that today. I want to give a big thank you to Mick Napier for chatting with me today, He's an incredible guy, and I think he's just brilliant. You can learn more about him by visiting his website, micknapier.com, and be sure to get your copy of his books, Improvise, Seen from the Inside Out, and Behind the Scenes, Improvising Long Form. You can also learn all about the Annoyance Theater by visiting their website, theannoyance.com, and the Chicago Magic Lounge at their website, chicagomagiclounge.com well that'll do it for today my friends I hope you found this episode entertaining and I hope that there were some things you were able to take away from this thank you for being a part of this journey and stay tuned for lots more coming soon here on Improv and Magic I'm L.D. Madera. be happy, be well be kind, be you See you next time.